podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Today I'm joined with Bob Zemsky. Bob is a professor of higher education at University of Pennsylvania and has written extensively about institutions becoming market smart and mission centered. Bob had a recent story in the Chronicle of Higher Education that really touched on some of the key issues that institutions are facing in this era of coronavirus. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. So you've been an advocate, as I mentioned, for market smart, mission-centered uh, institutions, but we have some large challenges squarely in front of us today with the coronavirus. What are some of those challenges from your viewpoint? Well, the first thing, believe it or not, is to know what you're talking about. So I spend a lot of time with presidents. That's part of what I do. And what I've learned is almost every one of them assembles the crisis team on the telephone every morning, and they go through this drill making all their decisions. And what concerns me is that they are making short-range decisions. Do we, get, do we give the money back for dorms? Do we plan to have a class in September? Without a lot of really clear understanding about what the flow is. So what we're looking at with the virus is a major episode that changes all the assumptions, at least for a while. And so what are the assumptions being changed? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting clicks. I apologize for that. When I get no emails, you can edit this out, right? Good no for worries. you. No worries, no worries. Anyway, so what, 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 what they all see that there is a whole lot of, of um, disruption, but they don't really have a framework to put it in, is my experience. So for example, I keep asking them, have they thought about the Federal Reserve? And only one president, he actually knew what I was talking about because the Federal Reserve is in charge of all of the mailing out of the checks. And the real question facing every one of these colleges is the Federal Reserve going to identify us as a small business? Are we going to be eligible for that kind of relief? Now, it also turns out that when the CARE bill went through the House, there was a piece for higher ed in it. Um, not as much money as NICU wanted, but there still was. And that's, that's what you have to do, is that you leave, you leave to the medical experts to tell you what the spell is. And, and it's pretty clear that they've told you, you need to uh, quarantine yourself, uh, whatever the term is, stay in place. Uh, but what do you do with your institution? So what are the institutional questions you ask yourself? Well, interesting, the one they all focus on, I've been amused about, do we have to give the money back on the dorms? And all right, I understand that that's, a couple of million dollars, but that's not the big question. The big question is, what's the probability we're going to be open in September? That's big question one. The second big question is, what's the probability that this virus is going to turn around and come back in November? I've got one of my presidents who's actually spending a lot of time scenario planning with his faculty because he's getting them to think look, you're going to have students in September, and then you're going to lose them again in November. Plan for it. Plan that uh, you're going to change the way you teach. So 
is the thing going to come back? What are you going to do? Then I got called today by Inside Higher Education. I, I spend almost as much time on the phone with those people as I do with my own. But the question was, is there going to be a hiring freeze? And I was sort of stunned by that. I said, well, it isn't so much going to be a freeze as it's going to be you're going to hedge your bet. Why would you sign a long-term contract with anybody, even a year-long contract with anybody, if you don't know you're going to be open? So you need to stack up these sort of what-if decisions so you understand. That's one whole set of things. And we can put that aside for a moment. Then the second question is, what are these students going to do? Let's imagine now that in September, we've got enough uh, mediation has taken place. We're going to open our colleges. Uh, we're going to hope that there is enough uh, medical help in case it comes back. Who is likely to come back? And you just can't sit around and say, well, I know Joe. Joe will come back. You've got to have some framework. So one of the presidents today was, he was telling me his framework. He was asking the question, how many of my students need an airplane to get here? He's in the middle of Iowa. Half his student body can drive. The other half can't. That's an important thing to know, that this isn't all your students at once. In his case, he's got the Iowa students. He's got the students in, 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 in northern Missouri, and he's got some students in Illinois who can drive. But he gets a fair number of students from New York. New York people are not going to drive in all probability. But if there's no plane, they aren't going to get there. Worse, he says to me, and he's right, let's now imagine they do come back. The planes bring them back. We shut down again. And then we're going to be right back where he is now. He's still got students on his campus that cannot leave because they cannot fly. Right. So there, there, there's a whole set of these really kind of tough logistical questions that you have to ask that its root cause has two things that you need to track. You really do need to understand this disease. And, 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 and you, can't, you can't just say, let's have good news. That's not going to work. We've learned that one. But you really do need to understand um, the path of the disease. And the question that's going to come out of that, he made clear, was, his go no go date for the fall is the middle of October, of the middle of August. If he doesn't know whether he's go no go for the middle of August, he's in huge trouble. But he knows that. I'm not sure most presidents have thought where is my go no go decision. Right. The second thing that you need to track is what are all these students going to do? Now, and that means you need to understand how you got the students in the first place. Now you teach at Drexel. Uh, Drexel is sort of this mixed university, a lot of traditional aid students, a lot of non-traditional aid students. The last time I looked at Drexel, however, it was pretty local, uh, although it has a huge component of international students. So now I'm thinking, all right, I'm at Drexel, I'm pretty local, here's how that's going to happen, but what's going to happen to the 20% who are international? And are they going to come and I can't get them home, or are they not even going to come? So it is really very complex scenario planning. It's not about the next 10 minutes. 
What, what startled me, well, I think startled's the right word, what startled me was all these presidents I deal with on a regular basis started the day exactly the same way. They assemble a Zoom meeting of the crisis team. And, and they were dealing with immediate problems. Well, we've got food orders coming. What do we do with them? That's, you know, that's not presidential territory. That's not even provostial territory. But they're a little bit afraid that if they don't push the details, nobody will. So what you've got is a lot of presidents spending a lot of time pushing the details. And they really need to spend more time develop their own personal and institutional understanding of this disease and its pathway and the options their students are going to have. That's a very long answer to your question, uh, Karen, but that's what I've got. Yeah, no, that's really, really helpful. Um, let me ask you to layer that on top of this shift that has happened in admissions uh, and, and talk through what dynamics that adds to the situation. All right, so I'm old enough, as you know, I have grandchildren. And I have one grandchild who is a, well, I have, two, I have two male grandchildren about the same age. Both of them, one of them graduated from high school last year and then took a gap year. And he was going to travel the world. He had saved his money, he was going to travel the world. He ain't traveling nowhere. He has guaranteed admissions. He actually will go, he's, he lives in France. He'll go to Europe, to university in, in the UK. He'll go to Lancaster. He at least has an image of what he's going to do next year. And they send him emails saying, uh, don't forget us, we're still here. That's the soft point. The kid who's actually a senior now has got letters of acceptance. He's got a wait list. And he's got, we're not ready to tell you yet because of the virus. So that what was, had become a very established rhythm what this admission cycle looked like. You were either an institution that did rolling admissions, or you're an institution that followed the old game of, you tell us on 1st of May and we'll plan for you to be here. All of that's in the air. Almost all of them have said, I think even the University of Pennsylvania, as a matter of fact, has said that you do not have to reply by April 15th, we'll give you till June 1st. Well, just think about that. That just upends all kinds of issues. There, a large part of the admission cycle is guessing, how's my yield going to be? How many of my, the students I want are admitted to those competitors that have higher yield rates? And at least you sort of got an early peak because people would talk. So if you're a Drexel, if you'll forgive me, you probably would like to know what's going on at the University of Pennsylvania. You can't know that now. That's all suspended. It's in deep freeze. And your admissions professionals, they can't travel. Remember, this is usually the kids can't come and visit. This is so they're just, it's all mush. And this is not a business that tolerates mush real well. <laughs> Well, let's focus now on athletics and let's focus particularly on small private colleges. How do you think presidents should approach now the serious issues that athletics faces financially? For most of those schools, there are no media contracts or thousands of fans coming to games. Worse, 
you must know this better than I. One of the things I've learned recently is the degree to which these small colleges are recruiting athletes internationally. So one of my institutions I work with has a world-class tennis team. There is not a Native American on that tennis team. There is, they, they do not get a single dollar of revenue from the, the team. Uh, they aren't on athletic scholarships, but they are on scholarships. So this president not surprisingly looks down and says, is this the moment to give up women's tennis? And as soon as he says that out loud, the phone starts ringing. People who say, well, no, our reputation hangs on our women's tennis team. So it, again, it's the uncertainty. Uh, I was talking earlier today to Bill Massey, you know his work. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, was, he was reminding me we've been through this before, is that it's, it's very hard to make rational decisions, particularly about finance and athletics. And when you put finance and athletics together, it's very hard. Yeah. Um, what goes through their mind is, well, if I cut, I'm going to use the women's tennis team. It could have been anything, including football, by the way. That this is this the moment to give up football and just play soccer? All of those things are out there, and nobody knows what to deal with them. Right. It, now, so things that have been fairly well buttoned down. Now, the story of athletics in these small colleges, as you know better than I, is it is the athletic department that anchors the male enrollment. And so I've got a small college who has 340 freshmen, 160 are on the, think they're on the football team. That's not 160 out of the whole college. That's just 160 out of the freshman class. Right. And, and uh, you know, the amount of playing time, they worry about that. They've got all kinds of interesting ways. They play lightweight football. They do lots of things. And all of that costs money. Is this the moment, they say to themselves, to rationalize this? Now, if they thought this was truly a dislodging event that will change things permanently, did you just go away or did I go I'm away? I'm here. I'm here. My okay. email's dinging like yours. <laughs> okay. Uh, the, um, is this the moment to, to really cut? In the midst of all this uncertainty, if we cut, are we going to be an all-women's college? Or are we going to cut women's athletics? So this isn't good news from your perspective. I know what you do, Karen. There is, this is all total uncertainty and no real framework for dealing with it. Uh, my advice to the president with the Chinese tennis team, you probably could do without the Chinese women. I then asked him, I said, well, do those Chinese women anchor another 20 Chinese women coming from China? And he looked at me, he didn't look at me, we're on the phone, obviously, but he looked at me like you're looking at me, actually. And he says, I don't know. And I know what he did. He got off the phone and he called up his athletic director to see, or his admissions people, do we get other people from China from the same town that the tennis team is coming? Right, right. Now, if it's the answer to that is no, it's easier to cut the tennis team. If it's yes, you know, well, 
we have, may have to have the loss leader on the tennis player so that we get the real cash on the other. Right. This is, none of them are trained in making those decisions. None of them have had to make that fine scale marketing decisions before. And my advice is they should, they should not be making the decision. They should have a team that presents, excuse me, alternatives to them. Because if they try to make all the decisions from scratch, they're going to go nuts. Yeah. Yeah, it is very complicated. There, there. I've done a lot of thinking uh, about what colleges and universities, conferences, and the NCAA should be doing right now to try to push money back to colleges to try to help them solve some of these problems, because losing March Madness was a was a huge financial hit on all of college sports. Now, I didn't and, understand that. I now understand that that got explained to me. March Madness pays for all the tournaments in the small college divisions. That's right, that's right. It's central to their competitiveness and their being athletes. Absolutely. So here March Madness went, we all thought, well, we didn't need the circus. It turned out the small colleges needed the circus. They need the circus and they, need, they also need the support of their conference offices uh, in order for them to be able to create tournaments that create qualification opportunities to the NCAA tournaments. So it is a massive, massive upheaval on that side. And how it gets worked out, whether it's loans or advances on television money in the future, I'm not sure, but I don't know that we're talking enough about that as well. The other question is, which I don't, another one that I don't have an answer to. I'm good at the questions, not the Me answer. Me too. <laughs> uh, so, Who is likely to be most unsettled by the decision to send kids home? The athletics, the athletes on campus or the non-athletes? Uh, do you know? I don't have an answer to that. Do you know the answer to that? I, I can tell you who's going to receive more media attention, and it's going to be the athletes. Because... Yes, but that's not the question. Yeah. The question becomes, if it was the athletes who were most distressed, then they're going to come back. If they weren't, if it's the other students who are the most distressed, they'll come back and the athletes won't. Yeah. And so, and I, I don't literally know. We don't have that kind of conversation. Right, right, uh, right. I've, I've heard uh, anecdotally from institutions where, you know, families were asked to move their <clears throat> children out of residence halls so quickly. And some families weren't even able to return to residence halls. And they're very angry at the institution. And I wonder if, if in fact that will impact their willingness to return again to face uncertainty. Or just, which I told you the first one, the Iowa school, he still got 60 people on his campus because they can't go home. Right, right. And, right. And, and you know the way that works. It's not his fault, but you better believe the families think it's his fault. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I have another anecdote, which I think actually happened, but you know in this game, everybody loves to tell stories and they just make them up. But this story, I think, is real. I'm just not sure of the family that called the president and said, this is your problem, charter a plane and send my boy home. Wow. And wow. You know, I can actually hear an angry father saying, charter a plane and send my boy home. It I can't guarantee you it happened, but, but it's something about everybody feels loss of control. Mm -hmm. That's really what's going on. We're, yeah. the, the whole system is losing control. 
It's losing control in the macro sense. It's losing the control in the micro sense. And it's just creating confusion everywhere. I think what isn't going to happen, you haven't asked me, but I'll weigh in on this. I don't think this is what's going to make e-learning work long term. Really? I think that when, if this comes, I think most, actually my bet is most students, if we open in September, are going to want to come and they'll be there. If we open in September and send them home in November, they're going to say, this just isn't reliable. Yeah. But at the moment, it is possible that this episode will be treated as a one-off instead of a major dislocation. Though it looks an awful lot like a major dislocation to anybody not experiencing it. So in winding this talk down, I really want to give you an opportunity to talk about <clears throat> your advocation for three-year degrees. You've been talking about it as long as I've known you, and that, that maybe that's, this is really the moment in time that we want to consider moving away from four-year degrees to three-year degrees. Right. Can you tell us more about yeah, that? Yeah, I'll, I'll double it up because I, there, there are two ideas I have. I will get to three-year degrees, I promise you. I have three minutes. I'll get there. But the first thing you need to know is there is now a mismatch between the faculty who teach and the students who learn. Mm. The faculty really do not know their students as learning enterprises. For example, there's enough literature out there that makes it clear that this generation of students doesn't read. Most faculty assumes that the first act of learning is reading. That doesn't mean the students aren't smart. That doesn't mean they don't do their homework, but they are not leisure readers. And faculty are notorious, are notorious for being leisure readers. Right. So this is the moment, this dislocation to say, why don't we stop and rethink what we're doing and whether it works for the students we teach? Now I get to where you're going. If you ask that question, the answer is there isn't anything we can't do in three years. And while you're going to say, well, there we're going to lose the whole year of revenue, you're losing revenue out the gazoo anyway. This would be the moment when things are enough up in the air to say. But remember, it's not the colleges or universities that are making that decision. It's the accrediting agencies. When we started the conversation 10 years ago, we actually got it started, a cover of Newsweek magazine, all you know, Lamar Alexander being the lead spokesman for it, all good stuff. And the accrediting said, no. Hmm. You, 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 a college degree is 120 credits. No ifs, ands, or buts. So when I say three years, I think there isn't anything we don't, can't do in 90 credits. Yeah. And do it differently. So yeah, this is the moment. Am I an optimist? No. <laughs> it doesn't matter. This is the moment. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think that uh, life is happening at warp speed and I don't know of anybody who really wants to take off four-year chunks anymore out of their life and commit to it full-time. I think people are too entrepreneurial in this younger generation and they want to do multiple things at the same time. But they also want to do something that they understand. I think that if you do student interviews, what you get now is, I don't understand why they're having me do this. They, they don't see method to the madness. Yeah. And I think if we shifted to a three-year degree with lots of internships and the first, you know, over it, 
they would again see method in the madness, they would be better students, and the whole system would work better. Any, uh, any final pieces of advice for athletic directors who are trying to navigate this uh, landscape going forward? Uh, well, the best advice I could give is hold on to your lead coaches. Okay. What, what is likely to happen is there, you know, a lot, a lot of your coaches really are part-time in small colleges, for example, and they're going to be desperate. They're going to look for other things. So if you, you know, you could find yourself just all by yourself as athletic director. You could be, you could be a three coach sport, a three sport coach right then and there. Right. And that, so yeah, look to your staff, look to see how you can help your staff go through this. Cause unless you don't want your staff, this would be a wonderful moment to change your staff. But assuming that's not where you are, look carefully at your staff, be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Good advice for anybody who's leading through this very challenging time. Bob Zemsky, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It was fun. Thanks, Karen. Bye-bye. Bye. To carry on our conversation about disruption, I want to talk a little bit more detail about college athletics right now. I don't think college athletics can afford to view its significant problems in isolation from the rest of higher education. And I want to present to you some of my out-of-the-box idea solutions that we might pursue as we try to move college athletics on from this pandemic. So here are some possible solutions. I know athletic directors are paying attention to the bottom line, but think about these things first. Since students will be making decisions on whether to play for your school or not, you must at this time raise your social, digital, and virtual game today. You need to be sure that you understand that the standard website filled with text and photos won't cut it anymore. With in-person campuses visiting, visits canceled for the foreseeable future, everything recruits learn about your programs will be from your social feeds. Do you put more into streaming and technology also so that your fans can engage remotely even if they aren't able to attend the games whenever they happen? Second thing is your institution may decide to extend their deposit deadlines from May 1st to June 1st or perhaps longer, as over 250 schools have currently done. How do you manage your coaching staff's anxieties through this? How do you stabilize rosters? With the NCAA's decision to extend an extra year of eligibility to seniors, how will that impact your bottom line? If your institution defines itself as quote-unquote tuition-dependent, that is 80% or more of its annual revenues come directly from tuition and fees, and only has a modest endowment, most indicators point towards a difficult path forward, no matter what NCAA division you are in. So how can your athletics department be a part of stabilizing the campus budget? And five, how can your department financially survive with fewer student fees subsidizing your programs. We all know this is a major source of revenue for the vast majority of D1, D2, and D3 programs. It is an important question to put on the table considering enrollments will remain unstable for quite some time for everyone but the large publics. So what if you need to take drastic measures? What can you get, how can you get ahead of this, this opportunity? Well, consider looking at the crisis through a different lens. View it as a chance to rebuild your program, and in fact, consider trying not to resume every sport at the beginning. 
the NCAA and conferences should begin active discussions now on some of these topics. Just as with reopening a business, start with your strengths and your greatest sources of revenue, college football and basketball. Remember your department will need to generate more of your own revenues today more than ever before. Consider shortening sports seasons, playing fewer games, and addressing minimum squad sizes necessary to compete. Ask yourself, would a six-game shortened season work for football if colleges are permitted to open beginning in September? And should conferences and the NCAA temporarily suspend minimum sports sponsorship requirements? How do you ensure a safe environment when you do invite fans back to the games? Consider things like taking individual temperatures, hand hygiene, spacing of fans in the stands, food safety. Really think about this. What if you get to start a season and then have to stop it again because the virus has come back? Nobody wants to think about that, but it is important for leaders to look further ahead. With interest rates as low as they are today, should you refinance current loans or repackage your debt? How should you structure department jobs over the next one or two years? Should you consider adding extra staff in fundraising and development? And of course, creative fundraising strategies should be ramped up. And of course, how do you do all of this in a way that is Title IX compliant? These are tough questions, but we need to ask them now in this age of disruption. If we don't think about it now, when will we think about it? And I want to echo again what Bob Zemsky said earlier in the podcast. Athletic department leaders need to take care of their staff right now. Presidents need to take care of their staff. But leaders have to allow their staff to work while they step back and consider some of the bigger issues. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us for another week of thinking about college athletics from the 30,000-foot perspective. In case this is the first time you are joining us, the podcast drops every Thursday morning. You can listen to previous guests and topics on eight different podcasting platforms, including iTunes and Spotify. Each week, I will strive to give you a deeper understanding of the complexities of higher education and intercollegiate athletics in the 21st century. Please also join me on Forbes.com for additional content and extended analysis. Have a great week.